it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome in one and all to the Guy Benson Show. From our D.C. studios, the Tony Snow studio at the Washington Bureau of Fox News. Very pleased to have you all here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern or wherever you listen to the show, various hours, different times of the day, including the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. It's free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and Instagram. You can also, while you're at it, follow me personally on those two platforms, at Guy P. Benson. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. Catch me this evening on Special Report on the panel with Brett Baer coming up just before 7 p.m. Eastern. That's on Fox News Channel. And speaking of Brett, he will be joining us here in studio on this show coming up in the next hour. A lot to get to with him, including a report out that the Justice Department is now weighing, expanding its investigation into Joe Biden and the classified documents and materials that have been found multiple times over at Biden's residence and in a closet at his office. And you know the story with the latest batch being announced that it was discovered just this past weekend. And then also breaking today, the former Vice President Mike Pence Apparently, he saw this whole controversy, instructed his lawyers to go check out his house in Indiana and perform a search just in case he had anything by accident, and lo and behold, he did. We don't know a ton of details, roughly a dozen documents classified at some level being turned over. That happened today. That broke today. So this whole incident, this whole issue continues to expand. We'll ask Brett Bayer about that. We will also... Get reaction from U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, who will be here in our final hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern time today. As we begin, though, we're going to do basically an hour on lawlessness in this country. And I'm pretty fired up today on this. I know there were some cynics who said that conservatives would stop covering crime. As soon as the election was over, it was purely about the election. No, it's about public safety and law and order. And in a lot of places in this country, things are dangerous and getting worse because we have public officials who are enacting, I would say, insane, irresponsible, in some cases despicable public policies that favor and coddle criminals and endanger the well-being, property, safety, and lives of innocent people. Yesterday on this show, if you missed it, we had our colleague here, Adam Klotz, meteorologist at Fox News. We interviewed him for a significant period of time in our final hour, two segments. And he recounted in a lot of detail, some new details we had not heard before, 
his harrowing and scary encounter on the New York City subways late on Saturday night, wee hours of Sunday morning, in a crowded train car where he was assaulted by a group of teenagers as he tried to just mildly intervene in other crimes that they were committing, including lighting the hair of a senior citizen on fire. He told them to knock it off. They beat him. He relocated to a different car to re-escalate or to de-escalate, I should say. And at the next stop, they chased him into that car, ambushed him, and beat him until he had to go to the hospital. As of yesterday, and as of last I checked today, there have been no criminal charges filed against the suspects, even though three of them were arrested. They were quickly released. And because of the pro-justice and supposedly equitable laws in New York, it's going to be actually rather difficult to charge them, certainly with anything serious. Now, because of some of the public pressure from shows like this one, he was on Fox and Friends, he was on Tucker, authorities in New York might be, like, shamed into pursuing this. Like, if he did not work at Fox News, if he were not in the media, I wonder if this would ever see the light of day. You wonder how many other people have been beaten by roving packs of criminals openly in public in New York with virtually no consequence. But he has a platform. We have a platform. We've drawn attention to this. And so there was an update today, NYPD releasing a photo of a fourth suspect involved in this savage beatdown that put Adam in the hospital. Three of the teens who were actually caught and arrested were instantly released with just juvenile reports after a brief booking. They could only, this is according to a new New York Post story today, they could only face charges if the victim here, Klotz, files a complaint to the City Department of Probation, which would then review the case to determine if they might do something about it at the family court level. Right? That's what it would take on the victim's part to maybe get some semblance of justice under the completely backward system that they put into place in New York, overseen by a governor who doesn't want to do anything about this stuff. She's been awful, which is why she only barely won re-election. And then this Soros-funded left-wing DA who sides with criminals. In the name of justice, of course. Now NYPD says that they have located the elderly man who was first accosted allegedly by these teens. And they might lodge charges against the crew for that. I mean, they lit his head on fire. That could kill someone. It still blows my mind that they're talking about this stuff as like just really, uh, you know, misdemeanors. They were using drugs out in the open, lighting their drugs publicly, then used the flame to light a man's head on fire. And when someone else objected, they punch him in the face He went to another car to try to stop this whole confrontation from spiraling any further. Then they chased him into that new car and beat him and stomped him and kicked him till he had to go to the hospital. That fact pattern, if that is like a misdemeanor, not worthy of punishment or prosecution, there is something extremely, deeply wrong and broken. Since we're talking about justice and New York and democratic policies, yes, I'm going to make this partisan because it is. 
Here's another new story out of New York City. Four migrants, so these are illegal immigrants. Oh, excuse me, asylum seekers. Four innocent asylum seekers, they look like they're in their 20s, who were bused to New York from the border, were arrested in Manhattan for shoplifting $12,000 worth of Macy's goods from a mall, escaping reportedly in a BMW. But they were arrested. They were caught. Now, pop quiz, everyone. Do you think they were held or do you think they were released without bail? The answer is obvious. This is New York, after all. They were immediately released without bail. And presumably, they went back home, quote unquote, to the taxpayer funded Weston Hotel in Midtown where they've been living courtesy of taxpayers in New York. A Republican congresswoman from Staten Island tweeting, I think, very succinctly about how this is a cascade of results of Democratic governance. This group, number one, entered the United States illegally thanks to the President of the United States and his effective open borders policies. We'll have more on that coming up later this hour, by the way, in our lawlessness hour. So they enter illegally, thanks to President Biden. Then they shoplift $12,000 worth of goods. They're arrested and released with no bail, thanks to Governor Kathy Hochul and her policies and the law that she refuses to change or tweak. You can also give an assist to Alvin Bragg on this one, that aforementioned left-wing DA in New York. And now... Taxpayers in New York City are paying to house and feed these people at a nice Weston. I'd imagine some American families may be coming to New York, bringing their kids there for a holiday or to be tourists. Couldn't afford to live at this Weston. Couldn't afford to stay there. Westons can be nice. That's where these illegal immigrants are being put up, courtesy of taxpayer dollars, thanks to the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. So open border policies, Biden. No bail policies, Hochul. Free Weston Hotel, Adams. Take a bow, Democrats. These are the outcomes of your policies playing out in New York City here in a way that's, like, cartoonish. You would think that some right-wing commentator made up this fact pattern. It's so damning to the lefty approach to governance, but it's true. And it's just a whole series of failures. Imagine being a law-abiding American citizen in New York. What a chump you must feel like sometimes. Hell, you could be having fun beating people up in the subways and robbing stores with impunity. It's maddening. And it's going to continue, right? I mean, this got some voters out in November. The Republicans, I would say, narrowly won the House, especially with the pickups in New York because of this issue. But overall, the Democrats are like, hey, the American people kind of gave us a victory. They feel like there has been a rubber stamp of approval pounded onto Democratic governance by the American electorate. 
Like, if the Republicans can't beat this and can't make decisions about who they nominate, people who are capable of beating this record of failure, then they deserve to lose or win underwhelming victories because this should be awfully easy to run against and beat. Now, speaking of failing policies, I want to bring you an update on the border crisis. Numbers that we had sort of previewed in recent weeks became official. It was a Friday night news dump, surprise, surprise, from Team Biden. We'll get you that information, plus how it's playing out in a lawless way in a city in Arizona. Another story that makes my blood boil. Coming to the air, obviously a little out of sorts, a little ticked off today. When there's this much lawlessness, there's also a story about Washington, D.C. that we'll get to. There's a lot still to get to here on the program today. More details out of Georgia, the Antifa riots there, the lies being told. We'll get to all of it. We're just getting started. It's Tuesday on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So in recent weeks, we've spoken to Bill Malugin and Griff Jenkins. And they had both told us, based on their sources and the data that they were seeing, that last month, December 2022, was going to be a record-breaking month in the border crisis. And lo and behold, on a Friday night news dump, that was confirmed by the Biden administration. More than 251,000 encounters in that month alone. 251,000 plus. More than 70,000 known, detected gotaways. In that month. Ten consecutive months of more than 200,000 encounters. Easy math. That's millions. Among the known gotaways, 70,000 plus in December alone. To date, this fiscal year, Border Patrol sources tell Fox News there have been more than 278,000 known gotaways. That's this fiscal year alone so far. October, November, December, and getting into January. More than a quarter million known gotaways that we know of. That comes out to almost 2,500 a day. These are not the encounters, people getting arrested. These are people that we can see on drones or cameras or body sensors, heat sensors, whatever. Someone, an officer sees them. They don't have the ability to go get them. 2,500 a day at the southern border. The official position of the Biden administration is that the border is closed and secure. That's what they tell us. Biden finally went down there to El Paso, saw zero migrants. What a dink! And his people come to the cameras with a straight face, and they say the border's secure and closed. 2,500 known gotaways a day. 200 to 250,000 encounters a month. 
for basically a whole year running. The White House talking point, by the way, probably their most pathetic talking point, and their stiff competition, but their most pathetic talking point is that the reason it's so bad is because critics of the administration have noticed the crisis and talk about it. Oh, it's the Republicans condemning the open borders that's causing people to come. That's what they actually say. Just spitting right in your face like you're a total brain-dead moron. This is what they tell us. It's, re- it's critics of the open borders that are causing the open borders, not the open borders policies. And on this theme of lawlessness, it's lawlessness hour here on the show, if you're just tuning in. In the month of December, here's one stat. Border Patrol arrested 17 people on the terrorism watch list in the month of December. So like every other day, catching someone on the terror watch list. Those are among the people that were encountered and arrested. We have no clue how many of them were among the 70-plus thousand gotaways. Then there's the unknown gotaways, another universe of people who aren't detected at all but get into the country illegally. If they're, you, you would think if you have ties to terrorism, you're on some terrorist watch list, you are incentivized to not get caught if you're trying to sneak into this country. If we've caught 17 of them in one month, you would imagine disproportionately the people who got away would have a lot more Convicted felons, criminals, dangerous people, and potential terrorists. It just stands to reason. It makes sense. So since the beginning of the fiscal year, we're now up to almost 40 terror watch list arrests. And that's not counting the, what, 280,000 gotaways. Unknown number in that group. People on the terrorism watch list or convicted felons. We see the rapists and the murderers who were caught not the ones who got away. Bill Malugin points out in fiscal years 2017 to 2021 combined, there were 26 arrests at the border of people on the terror watch list. 26 combined over those four years, 17 in the month of December alone. Then they come to the cameras and they tell you the border is closed and secure. Story out of Arizona, relatedly, next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Lawlessness hour on the Guy Benson show. I mean, we could go for multiple hours. We just, in the last segment, ran through the border crisis numbers for December. With the gotaways being, I would say, most concerning, the terror watch list numbers obviously right up there, too. The Biden administration tells us that the border is closed and secure. Okay, let's talk about Arizona. 
This was an interview that happened on Fox News, written up by the New York Post. Listen to this. Officials in an Arizona border town, this is Yuma, say they get a weekly flood of migrants totaling 6% of the city's total population. And the dire scenario has driven the area to the brink of collapse. Yuma has fewer than 100,000 residents, yet the town sees 6,000 migrants illegally crossing its border with Mexico every single week. That's a total of more than half a million people in the last few years, according to a county supervisor in an exasperated interview with Fox News. Nonprofits, churches, and the medical system are already struggling, officials and residents say. Quote, let's talk about the financial impact and the strain that it's placed on our hospital, Jonathan Lines said. He's the Yuma, uh, Yuma County supervisor. Right, so you've got 100,000 people in town, in the community. 6,000 illegal immigrants a week are coming into that community, just crossing over. 6,000 a week, week after week after week after week totaling half a million people. There's a hospital in that community for the people who live there. He says, so far, Yuma Medical Center has had over $22 million of unreimbursed expenses, specifically for people who are illegally crossing our border. So they're just racking up tens of millions of dollars in medical expenses treating people, and look, we're a generous, welcoming country. We value human life. If people are in trouble and need help, we help them. But the bills come due somewhere. And if you have a hospital teetering on the brink of collapse because it's overrun and just the math isn't working out because these people aren't paying, obviously, how is that acceptable? How is it acceptable to the people, the taxpaying, legal U.S. residents who live in Yuma, Arizona, who might need that hospital with their lives on the line? This local official went out and listen to this quote. I've received multiple calls from people saying I had to take my wife to San Diego. I had to take my wife to Phoenix to deliver a baby because there were no more beds at this hospital. Imagine being a law-abiding U.S. citizen living in Arizona. And you're about to have a baby or your wife's about to have a baby or you're about to become a grandparent and the local hospital is completely full of illegal immigrants. So there's no bed for you. You have to drive hours away to give birth. Because I guess the maternity wards are just overrun because there's an incentive to have children here, obviously. Separate issue. We talk so much about equity and fairness. How is this fair at all? You know, I'm not a big person who throws around like, you know, the America first mantra and all that sort of thing. But if you want to talk about what kind of looks like putting Americans last, it kind of looks something like this where an American community is completely overrun with illegal immigrants week after week after week for years, and some of them can't even get necessary medical treatment like giving birth because there's no room at the end of the hospital. So they have to drive for hours to go elsewhere. Here's another part of the story. 
migrant traffic is also threatening one of the city's main sources of revenue and income, agriculture. Quote, our fields are monitored and audited and tested for different pathogens, farmer Alex Muller said. You can't have people walking through the field, and yet that's what happens every day. As people walk across the border that the people in charge of the country tell us is closed and secure. And I know there are some lefties out there who would say this entire monologue is very xenophobic and racist. To which I say, screw you. And screw that. I am not a fire-breathing right-winger on immigration. I have supported all sorts of compromises in the past. This is an unsustainable disgrace. And if you're going to take the side of the lawlessness, then you can own that. Hold the epithets for the rest of us. It is not fair. It is not humane for the U.S. citizens and legal U.S. residents in these communities. It is also not humane to incentivize people to come here illegally, given the dangers that that entails. The abuses, the human and sex trafficking that happens for women and children, the assaults. It is inhumane. It is unsafe. It makes a mockery of our national sovereignty. And just the chef's kiss cherry on top is the people doing all of that, responsible for all of that, empowering these cartels. They turn right around and say, oh, We're the weird obsessives who might actually be bigots, and the border's really closed and secure. It's just a giant middle finger. Lawlessness. That's Arizona, where, by the way, they just elected a Democratic governor and reelected a Democratic senator. Little wake up call for the Republicans again. You can't beat this. What are you doing? In Georgia, where the Republican governor won a big, impressive reelection just a few months ago. We were talking about Brian Kemp and his approach to governance a lot on this show. Just yesterday, we talked about the uh, Antifa riots, the deadly Antifa riots in Atlanta and the way that they're being lied about. Well, let's tell you about one of those lies. Congresswoman Cori Bush Democrat of Missouri. She is a squad member, one of these left-wing socialists. She tweeted yesterday, last week police killed Tortuguita, a climate justice protester in Atlanta who was defending a forest set to be destroyed for Cop City, a police training center. I am calling for an independent investigation into their death. There must be accountability. And by the way, that's not a typo. I guess Tortuguita was non-binary. I read in a story, we'll get to this in a second, that its pronouns were they, it. So get that straight, you bigot. It was killed by police. Congresswoman Cori Bush links to a story in the U.K. Guardian, which is just a propaganda piece, quoting people recklessly speculating that this was a cold-blood execution of just an innocent 
climate justice protester, which is how Cori Bush, a congresswoman, describes this person. By the way, the forest set to be destroyed, this was a vote from the Democratic Council in Atlanta to create and designate this area to train cops and firefighters. That was the decision. Training is important. We live in a, we should live in a nation of laws. And even if you care deeply about climate justice, whatever the hell that means to you, you aren't allowed to stop legally permitted things from happening, places from being built. That's not something that you're allowed to do. You can oppose things. You can go to meetings. You can speak against them. You can vote for different people for the city council. You can't prevent something that has been approved this way. Now, if that's all that this person were doing, I would agree they should be cleared out of there and arrested, not killed. But as we pointed out yesterday, this is the crucial context, Tortuguita shot a cop before it was killed by the police. Literally three days before Cori Bush tweeted that out, tweeted the Guardian story, called this person a climate justice protester, made no reference in her tweet to even the allegation that this person had shot a cop. Three days prior to this congresswoman's tweet, Fox 5 in Atlanta reported this. The Georgia Bureau of of Investigation, their state-level version of the FBI, the GBI, says 26-year-old Manuel Esteban Paez Terran, oh, I think we've dead-named it, was the person who pulled the trigger of the gun that shot the officer, a state trooper. Investigators say a forensic ballistic analysis confirms the remains of a bullet pulled from the trooper's body during surgery on Wednesday afternoon, this is last week, was fired from the Smith & Wesson M&P Shield 9mm recovered at the scene. The GBI says Tehran, this person, opened fire after failing to comply with commands from members of the Joint Task Force during the clearing operation and that he had fired first. Other law enforcement officers at the scene then returned fire, killing Tehran. This person was an immigrant, by the way. I don't believe illegal. The purchase of the gun was legal. This was just a left-wing Antifa-style activist In this case, talking about the climate, what this is really about is a protest against the police, people who hate the police, people who don't want police facilities to be built. They don't want police to be trained. Then if there's worse training for police and they make a mistake, they want the police put in prison. This is what they do. And frankly, some of them just want police dead, including this person who shot a police officer. Ballistics confirm. Forensics confirm. This was confirmed days ago. And now this individual, they, it, whatever, is being held up as some sort of martyr. And we get a lot of hand-wringing and pearl-clutching about problematic tweets from various Republican members of Congress or politicians or what have you. And some of them are gross and problematic as far as I'm concerned. Here's Cori Bush just kind of repeating this libel making it seem like this was just an innocent, sweet little climate 
climate justice protester minding its own business before getting murdered by a cop for no reason, omitting from the tweet that this person shot a cop first. Oh, and by the way, the propaganda piece coming back to the uh, non-binary, transgender nonsense. That is like this bizarre fixation of the hyper-online hard left. The Guardian writes a whole piece, puff piece, about the guy who shot the cop. Big smiling face. Families devastated. They're going to come to America to protest and get justice and all these things. Many people are sort of like the many people are saying this was a cold-blooded execution by the police. They put like a line in that the police, the police claim that he shot first. Well, that's what the evidence shows. So the UK Guardian, this left-wing rag, they cover the story in the most left-wing way possible. And the very first comment in response to the tweet in this bias story is from a leftist white woman who says this is very important coverage. But my understanding is the person killed was non-binary and named Tortuguita. It looks like the Guardian referred to them as a man and by the wrong name. How did that happen? I, I it's there's likes there's something wrong with these people. Imagine being an Antifa member and climate justice warrior who shoots a cop, then gets killed. And your legacy in the aftermath of your untimely death, caused by you, by the way, is your fellow comrades screaming at each other about your pronouns. Just absolutely lost. These people should not be coddled. These people should not be indulged. I'm all for treating others as we would like to be treated. I try to do the pronoun things the way people want to be called or named or whatever. It gets completely confusing and exhausting. They, them, it. And somehow in this whole blizzard of stuff, it's lost on a lot of these people that the person in question shot a police officer. And somehow they're the good guy and the cops, as always, are the bad guys. And you get a lot of elected Democrats looking the other way because these are their people. Or fueling the fire. Like repeating the slander, doubling down on it. That's what a member of the squad did. Pathetic. Thank God there's an adult in charge in the state of Georgia. Brian Kemp, I saw that the attorney general said all the people who've been charged with terrorism will be fully prosecuted. Good. Throw the book at them. Throw them in prison for a very long time. This ain't Portland. This ain't Seattle. I know the left is trying to turn Georgia into that type of place. There's still enough people in Georgia who are saying, hell no. How about four more years of Brian Kemp? Eight-point victory. Any comment from Stacey Abrams, by the way, on any of this, I wonder? More on her and Georgia coming up in a little while. First, we got a break. One last lawlessness story to get to. Washington, D.C. That's next on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. As we're back on The Guy Benson Show, chronicling some lawlessness across the country, 
Let's finish up the hour here in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where the city council has just recently seen fit to reduce criminal penalties for serious crimes, including guns, violent crimes, carjacking. Carjackings have tripled in the last couple of years here. They're like, hey, let's reduce the penalties for that. Genius stuff. There's a conservative writer, not familiar with her, but her name is uh, Helen Andrews. And earlier this month, she tweeted, Today I decided to wait an extra five minutes outside the gates when I took the metro to see how many fair jumpers I could count. I did this four times at stops on the red, yellow, and green lines. The average number of fair jumpers spotted in five minutes was 22. So today she did it again. This is someone who commutes in D.C., and if you ever take the metro, I rarely do. I mean, you just see it all the time. People just not paying, jumping the turnstiles, going in, riding for free. And the metro is a complete mess. It's a fiscal basket case, partially because of this. It's a you know negative spiral. The whole thing doesn't work for that reason. So today, in five minutes, she counted almost 40 fare jumpers. She asked the metro attendant, the officer there, if he cared about people stealing. He said verbatim, quote, that's not my job. One fair jumper noticed her standing there and tallying, came up and asked her what she was doing. You know the train costs money, right, she said. This person responded that they hadn't paid for a train or a bus in D.C. in three years. 2020, I'm sure that's a coincidental timing. Just lawlessness. I think the city's going to enforce this. They're, they're reducing penalties for carjacking with a gun. Lawlessness. And it's almost all at the hands of one political party. It's just the truth. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour underway here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast free of charge every day on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, at Guy Benson Show on social media, Twitter and Instagram if you want to send us a follow. Fox News alert as we get going here in our middle hour. The Dow closing in the green today, up 104, ending at 33,733. With me here in studio in Washington, D.C., is Brett Bayer, chief political anchor here at Fox News, anchor of Special Report every night at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. I'll be on the panel tonight. Author of multiple bestsellers, most recently, To Rescue the Republic. You can follow him at Brett Bayer on Twitter. Brett, always good to see you. Hey, guy. I want to start on something of a somber note. A colleague of ours here at Fox just passed away recently at the age of 47 which is just a, a number that grabs you. Incredibly sad, young guy with a young family. Alan Kamizarov really put his imprint on this place. He's worked at Fox a long time. I did not work with him closely. I you know, knew him around the building. That was about it. I know you worked with him much more closely. Just talk about Alan and, and what he did here and why he, why he will be so missed. Yeah, he was uh, the senior vice president of news and politics, and Alan basically dealt with every major event, um, big event that we covered, breaking news, election nights. He was in my ear on election nights. He gave us the look that 
we had this past election night uh, that was so successful and had the vision about, you know, Bill's billboard and everything else. So he was really a, a visionary when it came to big events at Fox. Um, he'd been at the channel since before the channel started, 1996, uh, and was a really affable guy. Had some heart problems about 10 years ago, had a heart attack, and bounced back, lost weight, seemed to be doing great. And so it was really sudden when he died at 47. I went to the memorial service up at East Brunswick, New Jersey, and it was so cool, Guy, to see how many people came out, not only from our Fox family, which was there in droves, um, I think Hemmer called it the Fox Mafia showed up, um, but also his friends in New Jersey, his school friends, all kinds of people that were just there to support the family. So really pray for um, Rachel, his wife, and um, Ben and Olivia, his two kids, 17 and 13. Mm. And um, and listen, we're going to do everything we can to help the family, but uh, he was a great guy, and we're going to miss him. Thank you for sharing that. I just wanted people to hear it from you. I know you've paid tribute on Special Report and really across the channel, and I felt like I wasn't equipped to really talk about it because I didn't really know him that well. Obviously, you've worked with him very closely. One story that you've been covering at Special Report for now weeks is this classified documents mess involving President Biden. Now there's a new player in the drama. Mike Pence, the former vice president, turns out that I guess he was – getting a little anxious watching all this coverage, (laughs) tasked his attorney with going to his house in Indiana to do a similar type of search. And it turns out that they turned up about a dozen documents. This was alerted today. And people are playing this flashback from November during the whole Mar-a-Lago thing. Pence was asked about classified documents on ABC News. Here's that exchange, Cut 29. You take any classified documents with you from the White House? Uh... I, I did not. Um, do you see any reason for anyone to take classified documents with them leaving the White House? Well, there'd be no reason to have classified documents, particularly if they were in an unprotected area. Like a house in Indiana. So, unless, you, unless you do. Right. Unless you do. I mean, so on and on it goes. Um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Mike Pence. What's the point of having these laws, Brett? Well, first of all, we are three for four so far on former presidents, former vice presidents who've taken home classified documents. I wonder if former President Obama is doing any checks of any offices Mm -hmm. or home spaces. uh, Kamala Harris, perhaps. Who knows? Um, I do think that what happens is it just becomes a garbly gook of politics like a big wash of, oh, well, they all do it. And, you know, what's, you know, obviously the, this isn't a big deal. Where, when it is really a big deal, actually, having these classified documents, depending on what they are. Right, which we don't know about Pence, right? With Trump and Biden, we know that there was top secret stuff in there. So that's one of the highest levels. We don't know what the actual landscape looks like with the Pence docs yet, which could make a difference. But again, I think this all just gets fed into a machine and totally. like a wood chipper and people are just like, oh, screw it. Yeah. So if you want to talk pure politics for the past two weeks, this has been a really good time for the former president, Trump, who was looking on the back end of a pretty serious investigation. Not that it's not going to continue to do that. But in this context, in this perspective, it's like, you know, 
there's other issues here, and it's really going to be tough for the attorney general to look at a special counsel and say, okay, we're going to go forward with an indictment here, but not an indictment here, and then what are we going to do with Pence and, you know, who else? And so I think it's really sticky and becomes just a morass of, well, here we are. They didn't prosecute Hillary. Her situation, in my view, which I've laid out for various reasons, was the worst of all of them that we've seen of this group. And I stand by that completely. If they're not going to prosecute her, then well, they yeah. shouldn't. I mean, if you have the the phones being hit with a hammer right. and destroyed. She destroyed evidence. She had a bootleg email server to circumvent the proper protocols that Robert Gates said was almost certainly hacked by our enemies that contained like hundreds of classified emails on them and then destroyed evidence and lied about it. That's the worst. If she didn't get prosecuted, then you're not going to prosecute Trump on this, I don't think. And now you've got Biden here. He's not going to get prosecuted. Pence, probably the least bad so far of the four of them. It's just sort of depressing. And I'm not saying that any of these—I think Hillary should have been prosecuted. Then there's like this effect where if she didn't cascading down, it gets harder to prosecute other people. But normal people, quote-unquote, in the government, in the military, one page of classified material somewhere that's errant— could get them a prison sentence, and I think that is a problem when it's it comes to most, public confidence. It's the most egregious part of the story in classification. You know, an E-5 who has some document about a nuclear submarine, um, not to sell it, not to, you know, that it's an accident, but it's home, uh, gets in real trouble if you're holding that classified information outside of a classified area. So, listen, I think that this um, does move forward, but it, the way the White House has handled it, has been so egregious uh, that I think it made it more of a story, more of a problem, and politically, it's it's really an albatross for the for the president. Here's a question that was posed yesterday to Corinne Jean Pierre. She was just briefing a moment ago, but it was about the "we take this very seriously" claim that they say like on repeat every single day, coupled with President Biden himself saying that he has no regrets about any of it. Here's how she tried to uh, fit that round thing into a square hole or however she was working her very special magic. Cut 12. You have said, though, from this podium many, many times over the last two weeks that this president takes the handling of classified material very seriously. And yet we continue to learn about more documents being found and discovered at his home, including now some that go back decades to his time in the Senate. So why should the American people believe that this president takes classified material seriously and the handling of it? Look, the president, the American people heard from the president directly on this when he was asked by your colleagues at least twice now about um, about how he sees this process. And he was very clear with with the response of what we're currently seeing. And he says, I take this very seriously. He said, I didn't know uh, that the documents were there. He takes it seriously because he said he takes it seriously. It's so bad, guy. It's so, so, so bad. It's, It's, you know, the president is this guy that values being transparent, so he says, as he campaigned and as he became president and his straight talk and folks, no, I'm not joking. uh, That's it. Well, he should say, listen, here's what happened. These documents, I don't know how they got there. They were packed up or I was doing a book. Accidentally, this stuff got in. He didn't do any of that. What he said was, I have no regrets. And there's no there there. there. And then the White House press secretary is saying what she says again and again and again. 
uh, is almost a thumb in your face. Like, like 15 seconds here, Brett. I know she's got very bad facts to deal with, but I can't imagine being less effective in trying to communicate about this. I've seen White House press secretaries. For someone who doesn't have answers that makes Scott McCormick look really good um, is really something. We'll leave it there for now. Brett Bayer, anchor of Special Report, coming up at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. I'll be joining the party on the panel. Great to see you, Brett. You too. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come right back. Much more of the Guy Benson Show still to come. When we come back, a Georgia voter suppression update you want to hear. That's straight ahead. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. You know what? It's been a while since we've done one of these, but it's time for another. It's a Guy Benson Show Jim Crow on steroids Georgia voter suppression update. A new poll from the University of Georgia conducted after the midterm elections asking the Georgia electorate about their experience voting last year, late last year. And here are the results. More than 90% of midterm voters in Georgia said it was easy to cast a ballot. Most waited less than 30 minutes. So the absolutely overwhelming majority said it was easy to vote and they didn't have to wait very long to do it. In the poll, listen to this response, 0% of black respondents said their voting experience in Georgia was poor in the midterm election, which was the first election since the new Georgia election reforms were put in place. Zero percent had a poor voting experience. Zero. Not one. Not one. Around 73 percent of black voters called their voting experience excellent, equal to white voters in the poll. This is what actually happened in reality. In the fever swamp, fear-mongering, racist demagoguery world of the Democratic Party and some of the media, Georgia became ground zero for voter suppression because of the racist, evil Republicans. Stacey Abrams, two-time loser, conspiracy theorist, she called it Jim Crow 2.0. Senator Warnock jumped on that train as well, shamefully. Joe Biden, worst of all, like Mr. Healing Moderate, went down to Georgia, compared supporters of the bill to segregationists and Confederates. Said it was worse than Jim Crow, worse than Jim Crow, worse than mandated government-enforced racial segregation. Segregated lunch counters, buses, police dogs unleashed on black protesters. He said that the Georgia law was worse than all of that. He called it Jim Eagle, which was a stupid malapropism. Very Biden-esque. That's what he said. A bunch of major corporations, like fools, caved to the woke mob and their lies. And that's all you can say is call them lies. Coca-Cola, which has sort of backed off since. Delta Airlines disgraced itself. Major League Baseball, especially pathetic. 
pulling the All-Star game out of Atlanta, harming a bunch of black-owned businesses, by the way, based on a lie. Voter suppression, racism, Jim Crow 2.0, Jim Crow on steroids, and what actually happened was by far the highest turnout in the history of Georgia in the midterm, not even close, record-setting turnout. In the primaries, in the general, and in the runoff. Across racial lines. And in a comprehensive, independent poll from the University of Georgia, 73% of black and white voters said their experience was excellent. More than 90% said it was easy to vote. And 0% of black voters, the supposed victims in the suppression here, the alleged suppression, 0% said that they had a poor voting experience. It was all a giant hysterical lie to divide people and to scare people. Maybe they scared some people into turning out as a short-term cynical ploy to help their own turn out their own electoral chances. My guess is they'll probably run out of that steam now that everyone has experienced that they were lying. It doesn't make the lie any less disgraceful. It doesn't take the disgrace away from the entities and the organizations that fell for it or played along with it. Gabriel Sterling, who works for the recently re-elected Secretary of State in Georgia, he's been on this show, responded to this data saying Georgia has safe, secure elections that are easy to vote in. The Election Integrity Act increased confidence and made it easier for Georgians to vote. Anyone who says otherwise is trying to con you out of money, including a certain twice-defeated gubernatorial nominee. Governor Brian Kemp, who took a lot of incoming over this, was called all sorts of things, was the butt of a lot of the lies. He tweeted, yet again, the myth of voter suppression in Georgia fails to be supported by a shred of evidence. It is past time for President Biden and his allies to apologize to the people of Georgia and request the DOJ withdraw its ridiculous lawsuit against the state. That's a good point. The lie is actually ongoing. You could call it a big lie. A big election and system denying election integrity undermining lie that is still taking the form of a Biden DOJ totally politicized lawsuit against the system in Georgia, which is not flawless, but pretty close. Far better than other states, far more expansive, for example, in a lot of the early voting. And this parade of horribles based on race that they told us was going to come loudly and hysterically, hyperventilating with rage, none of it came to pass. It was all untrue. And now we have actual reality we can point to, not just prospectively explaining how they were lying at the time, retrospectively proving that they lied. As for that apology, good luck. I wouldn't hold your breath. They almost never admit they were wrong, especially when they were disgustingly and embarrassingly wrong for political reasons. Every second that the lawsuit continues from the Biden administration against Georgia is an absolute slap in the face of reality, a waste of time and a waste of taxpayer money. And the data supports that conclusion. It's a somewhat satisfying result here for those of us who were calling it out from the very beginning. We were right. They were wrong. 
full vindication, but it also gets me worked up remembering the lies, the extent of them, the tone, the reason that the lies were told with virtually no accountability. That's the part that gets me. So we'll just tell the truth. Now, speaking of truth and lies, let's turn back to Florida, a controversy heating up down in the Sunshine State. We've got new audio, new analysis right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Just past the halfway mark here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Our website podcast is free every day. Last week, we brought you this story, and I predicted at the time that it was going to blow up into a national controversy. It hadn't yet. A lot of the press hadn't glommed onto it at that point. But I knew that it had all the ingredients of becoming something of a nationwide media firestorm because it involved race, it involved education, and it involved Florida and Ron DeSantis. And they never miss an opportunity to melt down over things that he does, even if in their righteous indignation and their tunnel vision and their little tribal silos, they don't understand that what DeSantis is doing is actually playing a strong hand. And beating them. You think back to the misnomer so-called don't say gay controversy, which we talked about here, where activists decided that it was a don't say gay bill. The media just ran with it because it's their buddies, their ideological buddies. They took the left wing framing, embraced it entirely as if it was news, as if it were accurate. This is what they do. And then because they're lazy and not terribly bright. And also, I think, deeply cloistered and sheltered from how normal people think, they kept coming after DeSantis over the supposed outrage that the central part of that bill, now the law, was that there would be no sexual orientation or gender identity instruction in classrooms for like five to eight-year-olds, K through three, which turns out to be a very popular provision among Floridians and Americans broadly. But because they only talk to one another and they don't really have a sense of how people think, what they believe, they're vastly out of touch and also irrationally scared of, maybe rationally scared of, I should say, DeSantis. Irrationally hateful toward him, but rationally fearful of him politically, let's put it that way. They just ran with it. So now we're seeing on race something similar, this advanced placement African-American studies curriculum that has been developed in secret, was not released to the public until people like yours truly got our hands on it and started to put it out there into public view, being test-driven, pilot programs, 60 high schools this academic year. They wouldn't tell us, the college board wouldn't tell us where those schools were, which schools they were, what was in the curriculum. They just wanted to get this curriculum approved. All across the country, and then rolled out in the 2024 school year in high schools all over the place. And it seems like they were trying to circumvent a public debate over the curriculum, over the materials, by shrouding all of it in secrecy and mystery. And the general idea would be if you're against it, if you have a problem with it, it has to be because you're a racist, which is, of course, the 
exhausting, pitiful, predictable playbook from the left. So the DeSantis administration down in Florida, they looked at the curriculum. And having spoken to some of DeSantis's team, it seems like their inclination was similar to mine looking at the four-part unit curriculum. Right, There's four separate units in it. It seems like overall units one, two, and three are completely, overwhelmingly, I would say, above board, appropriate, worthy of serious scholarship, something that I would be interested in taking as a course myself. It's the fourth and final unit that was going to raise hackles, raise problems, raise eyebrows, and perhaps issues as well. The team down in Florida, Department of Education, reviewed it and determined that as written, you have to look at the whole thing, as written, this would be rejected for teenagers in Florida, like instruction to teenagers, high school students. And when you look at some of the things that they have shoehorned into Unit 4 in this proposed course, you get themes such as intersectionality and activism, black queer studies, post-racial racism, prison abolition, And race-based reparations. And you look at some of the suggested readings in the syllabus, and it is almost uniformly left-wing, including some Marxist-type stuff, anti-capitalism, with virtually no balance at all from, like, centrist thought, let alone right-leaning thought. So you can have... A curriculum that is 75% good, but the last 25% is just an open field day for left-wing teachers to just jam a bunch of radical stuff down the throats of 16- and 17-year-olds, and that's going to be a problem. And Florida said, nope, if that's what you're going to have, if that's going to be part of this, then we're out. This is not going to be offered in Florida schools. So that was the decision that they made. My prediction which was an easy one here on the show last week, was people were going to grab onto this and say that Ron DeSantis is a racist who is trying to ban black history in the state of Florida. All right, take what he's actually doing and the decision that they've made for specific reasons, distort them, and blow it up into something far beyond what the actual narrow controversy actually is. Because that's what they do, and they cannot help themselves. And lo and behold, that is precisely what has been happening in recent days. Washington Post opinion piece, in blocking AP Black Studies course, DeSantis tells us who he is. A bigot, an opportunist, you know, all all of the things that you might expect. Newsweek op-ed, Ron DeSantis is banning black studies in schools, and it's disgraceful. A lot of the framing in so-called news articles is similar. Very sympathetic to the left-wing viewpoint because journalists are overwhelmingly left-wing. The woker, the better. And they have a common enemy in Ron DeSantis. They hate his policies, just like they hate almost all conservative policies and the conservatives who pursue them. They also really dislike him because he keeps winning and he poses a threat to power. He's crushed their party in Florida, and he might have an opportunity to beat their party nationally as well. When I say they, I mean the Democrats, and the teachers, and the journalists. They're all on the same team, for the most part, right? There's, there's exceptions, but in terms of 
the way they operate as groups, it's not subtle. So Governor DeSantis was asked about this by a reporter at a press conference, and he gave his reply. And I saw sort of a left-leaning social media account share these clips, I think because they believe they are self-evidently damning for DeSantis and look bad for him. You just listen for yourself, and you decide if you think Ron DeSantis is sounding crazy and irrational and bigoted and all of those things and hurting himself with answers like cut 24. And as you know, uh, in the state of Florida, our education standards not only don't prevent, but they require teaching black history, all the important things that's part of our core curriculum. This was a separate course on top of that for advanced placement credit. And the issue is we have guidelines and standards in Florida. Uh, We want education, not indoctrination. If you fall on the side of indoctrination, we're going to decline. If it's education, then we will do this course. So when I heard it, we didn't meet the standards. I figured, yeah, they may be doing this here. It's way more than that. It's way more than that, he says, getting into some of the specifics in Cut 26. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. And so we're on, that's the wrong side of the line for Florida standards. We believe in teaching kids uh, facts and how to think, but we don't believe they should have an agenda imposed on them. When you try to use black history to shoehorn in queer theory, uh, you are clearly trying to use that uh, for political purposes. So the response from some on the left is, see, he's racist and homophobic. Which is in their little bubble exactly how that would sound. I think to almost everyone else, what you just heard sounds entirely rational and appropriate. Right? If you're teaching a course to teenagers, to kids, about black history in America and you've decided that a key part of black history is, quote, black queer studies, is that a great priority? Is that an important priority? I'm not saying there's not maybe some subgenre or different subcultures who might fall into that category. I'm not sure that is so important that it needs to be part of an AP syllabus for high school students looking at the broad landscape of black history in the United States over hundreds of years. He uses that example. He brought up intersectionality. That's also literally in the curriculum. He talked about prison abolition. I mean, really wild left-wing fringe stuff. Why is that in there? In fact, when you look at public opinion among black people on things like defund the police and abolishing prisons, some of this crazy stuff, they are strongly against it. It's a handful of political activists that push this stuff. In fact, in polling in some of these very blue cities, you have white liberals more likely, thinking this is what people of color want, more likely to embrace some of the anti-law enforcement craziness than people of color who understand the consequences in their communities, in their neighborhoods. If you have less rigorous enforcement of the law, less rigorous policing, less of a police presence, it is deeply detached from the lived experience of a lot of the people that these activists claim and purport to represent. Having a whole little subsection on the 
prison abolition movement smells very, very political in this context, does it not? Post-racial racism, this is the general idea that moving to a post-racial society, judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, to quote someone very prominent, that is actually a form of racism. Saying that you want to move to post-racial America where you don't focus on race, that they say to the equity folks, to the race obsessives, that is racism. That's a component of this curriculum, that general mindset. The reparations movement, way out there, of people who had nothing to do with systemic governmental injustices against black people far in our past would pay money out of their pockets to the government to then redistribute to people who were not directly impacted personally by those old policies, a very unpopular and extreme position. That's in there. DeSantis hastens to point out, knowing what the attacks are, knowing what the lies are, that the education core curriculum standards in his state require the teaching of black history. The question is, are the elements of the syllabi in this new proposed AP class appropriate for high schoolers? Is it a fair-minded, balanced, accurate approach to black history, or does some of it veer off into left-wing indoctrination and activism? And based on what we've seen and what we've reported on at townhall.com and talked about here, I think there's enough of the latter for there to be a problem. And yet, we'll still hear a bunch of deceit. And I think this is just getting started. This is a fight that is growing. The decibels are going up, up, up. Randy Weingarten, one of the most destructive figures on the public stage today in this country, she put out a video angrily denouncing this and, of course, lying because she is a liar. Luckily, I think for people who oppose her agenda, like me, she is very unlikable and not very intelligent. But she is a liar as well. I will play you her latest hysterical lie right after this on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Right before the break, I was talking about Randy Weingarten lying about Florida, distorting things, and this whole controversy involving Ron DeSantis. So here's how she decided to frame it on her social media, Cut 27. I taught AP, AP Gov in particular. So not too many things that Governor DeSantis does shocks me, but I was pretty shocked when he decided to deny students AP African-American history. Now, what AP courses do is they teach kids critical thinking. They teach kids real engagement with history, true history, discerning fact from fiction, and they give kids college credit while they're in high school. But while that shocked me, what outraged me is the course he decided to censor, to block. How can Governor DeSantis erase all of black history, not give access to black history to students? That is shameful. Well, it's a lie, is what it is, Randy. I know you're either too stupid to realize that you're lying, or you're smart enough, just smart enough, to know that you're lying on purpose. Black history is a requirement in the state of Florida. 
Governor DeSantis is not, quote, erasing all of black history and, quote, not giving access to black history to students. His administration is rejecting one part of a curriculum that is proposed for reasons that are fair-minded. You can argue that those are appropriate things to teach to teenagers, but that's what's at issue here specifically, not the erasure of all of black history as you assert. She calls it shameful, which is certainly something she knows about. Maybe a subject expert, as a matter of fact. Randy's probably ticked off at DeSantis as well because of a new proposal that he's put forward in Florida, legislation that would make teachers' unions a lot less powerful, which sounds like music to my ears. This proposal, as relayed by Brian Griffin, his spokesperson, would say there's no more deducting automatically of dues, union dues from teachers' paychecks, number one. No union business can be conducted or flyers distributed at work. School union bosses can't be paid more than the highest paid teachers. There's also a requirement to have 60% representation for the union to exist. Teachers unions in Florida just are an appendage of the Democratic Party. They actively organize against Republicans. They are not in the business of education or helping children. They are in the business of helping Democrats. And if that's how they're going to operate, I think all of these ideas, all of the measures lined up and laid out in this bill are terrific. Really past due in a lot of ways. Randy Weingarten tweeting furiously about that earlier, calling it a teachers union busting bill. Which I think is excellent. Bring it on. I hope that's what it is. I hope she's describing it accurately. But I think that's part of the reason why she views him as such a threat and why she's going off on social media against Ron DeSantis, which I would say every single instance of this is an in-kind contribution from Randy Weingarten to Ron DeSantis. And to the extent that Ron DeSantis keeps winning, that is a direct benefit to the families, the parents, and the students in Florida. Oh, and by the way, meanwhile, DeSantis is also calling in the new budget in the new session to increase pay for teachers. So let's actually help teachers, reward good teachers, keep CRT and indoctrination out of the classroom, and not let Randy Weingarten and her ilk run the show. As a Democratic racket in the state of Florida, that all sounds like a win-win-win to me. No wonder she's mad. No wonder they're scared. No wonder they're going to continue to lie. And we're going to keep fighting back on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up next. Don't go anywhere. U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn is next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Tuesday happy hour on the Guy Benson Show here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free on demand after the show every day. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'll be on set with Brett Baer and the team right around 645 Eastern. That's on Fox News Channel. This hour of the Guy Benson Show is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. 
got a brand new shipment just a few days ago, so we're putting a dent in that, at least we did over the weekend. We encourage you to try it out if you haven't already. See why it is gaining hugely in popularity. If you're 21 plus only, of course, always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com is their website. To find out more, where they're sold near you, order online, TheLongDrink.com. Joining us now, U.S. Senator Marshall Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee, author of The Mind of a Conservative Woman. You can follow her on social at Marsha Blackburn. And, Senator, it's good to have you back here. It is so good to be with you, and I think it's the first time I've talked to you this year, so Happy New Year. And right back at you, Senator. We look forward to many chats here in 2023. I do want to get your reaction to a news story breaking today. We've been following the classified document scandal involving Joe Biden for the last couple of weeks. Today we learned that apparently watching all of that coverage, former Vice President Mike Pence asked his lawyers to do a search of his home in Indiana to make sure he didn't have anything by accident that might be classified. Turns out he did, about a dozen documents. That came out today. Your reaction now to the Pence wrinkle in all of this, Senator? Well, I <laughs> I kind of chuckled a little bit, and I thought, you know, I may be the only person in D.C. that has not brought home classified documents. Are you sure? But <laughs> I am sure. But we do not know what occurred with the documents and what they are. I'm sure that will be investigated. We do know that the White House is in the midst of trying to cover up Joe Biden's document uh, caches that they have found, not only in the office, but also uh, at the home in Delaware. Uh, We don't know the length of time that he had those. Uh, We don't know if any of those were declassified after his his taking, but that's why they've uh, given a, they've appointed a special counsel to look at that. And I do think that there are some differences um, between the cases in that the FBI raided President Trump's home despite the fact that he had the authority as commander-in-chief to declassify the documents and indeed has said he had declassified some of those documents. And we know that as vice president that Joe Biden had no authority to declassify documents and as vice president Uh, Vice President Pence would have had no authority to declassify documents. Yep. And, I mean, there's no evidence that Trump actually declassified some of the stuff that he said he did in his mind down at Mar-a-Lago. That's a separate issue that we've been critical of here on this show. We've been highly critical of Joe Biden as well. Now you add Mike Pence into the mix. Of course, we think back to Hillary Clinton, I think, worst of all. It's like, has anyone at the highest levels of our government actually done this responsibly? I think that's a very frustrating thought for a lot of Americans, knowing that people lower down on the food chain would get locked up for mishandling classified materials. Not hypothetically, this has happened many times over. And I guess from the Pence perspective, Senator, you've got to hope that this was, you know, uh, an honest, forthcoming effort on his part to make sure that he was not accidentally swept up into this whole thing. They found the extent of what he might have had. Maybe it's lower classifications. We don't know those details yet. And they've put it all out there because part of the issue that Biden's had 
as you know, is it was the initial discovery that happened months ago before the election. They sat on that. They covered it up for a while, uh, which seems to be a big difference here with Pence. It seems like they did this as quickly as possible. And then there's just been one after another. I think at this point, about half a dozen new announcements of new discoveries and troves of documents in various places. And if Pence is going to also have a drip, 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 that becomes a problem for him the way that it actively is for Biden. I'm not convinced that we've seen the last of the Biden documents. Are you? I'm not convinced that we have because you look at the length of time that transpired and the fact that they said, well, we didn't know that those were there. And uh, you look at what we're hearing, that these deal with China and Ukraine and the concerns that those would raise with us. But, Guy, I think the bigger point is this. It causes the American people to distrust the system, and it causes them to say, what is the proper process for this? How is it that anybody could get documents outside of the skiff, which is the secured area in which we go to to look at classified documents? Or if we want to take a phone call that is a classified phone call, we go to the skiff. Uh, This is not something that we take a classified phone call on our cell phone or in our office. We go to a secured area. When we want to read a classified report, we report to the SCIF. We sign out the document for a given period of time and then sign it back in. There is a process around that. But it looks as if there needs to be a review. And I'm Well, can, can I actually just jump in several of us very quickly, will- Senator? Based on what you just described as those protocols, I've seen other members of the Senate and longtime Senate staffers reacting to the new tranche of documents that was at least brought to our attention and announced the discovery of which was announced over the weekend that some of those classified documents in the latest batch came from Biden's term in the U.S. Senate. And people have said, and you were kind of hinting at it there, they don't really know how it would even be possible for a senator to have classified documents in his possession and take them out of the Senate, out of a skiff, let alone home, and keep it at his house for more than a decade at the very least, based on what you were just describing as the system in place, do you have that same question, how it would have been physically possible for someone like Joe Biden to have done that? How could this happen? How could he have gotten them out of the skiff? Uh, you can't. We have a place where we check our telephones, our iPhones, in when we go into the skiff. We don't take anything in there, and you can't even wear a a watch that um, you know an iPhone a watch, watch, Apple Watch, yeah, into the skiff. So you, this is a secured area. So it is very curious to me that he had those documents in his possession for this length of time, that he has obviously moved them from one location to another. Uh, The questions around who had access to those, who was in proximity to those, uh, were they shared with anyone? The list of questions go on and on, and it is of concern that they knew about it, they tried to cover it up and keep it quiet. 
and then uh, someone leaks it and they have to say yes and we knew about it before the election. Yep. Months later, the leak finally arrived and they've been blundering ever since with one fresh discovery after the next. The president supposedly shocked and surprised at every turn by all of it. Last question on this point, Senator. I've been really struggling to reconcile what the White House has been saying over and over again, which is that the president takes the classified materials and the handling thereof very, very seriously. And then President Biden's own quote from his own mouth last week saying that looking at all of the discoveries to date, this was before the last one was revealed, he had no regrets about any of it. How can you say that he takes it all very seriously, seeing just the evidence that he doesn't, especially when he says he has no regrets? Guy, it is astounding to me that he can say he has no regrets, that he um, had these documents, he had them outside of a secured area in his possession, has moved them around. Um, I, I, I find it just so curious that those documents would have been there for others to see, for information that should be classified, sources that should be protected processes that should be protected, uh, that that would have been out and available these many years for anyone who was in that area to pick them up and to read them or to photograph them. Senator Blackburn, on another matter, I want to ask you about this bipartisan letter that you have sent with Senator Blumenthal to the FTC involving online ticket sales and Ticketmaster and that whole blow up from really a few months ago where it got hot involving Taylor Swift, who's a constituent of yours, maybe not a supporter, but a constituent. She and her fans very angry about this. Allegations of monopolistic practices, uh, consumers being poorly treated. What was the thrust of your letter? What are you concerned about on this issue? With the Ticketmaster Live Nation uh, issue, one of the things that has really concerned us is this is there is no fairness put into this system for either the artist, uh, the production company, the tour manager, the business manager for these artists, and the venues that are trying to sell these tickets. And in Tennessee, this is an issue of true concern because you have this monopolistic activity from Live Nation and Ticketmaster, and Ticketmaster controls access to all to 70 percent of the tickets for concerts and venues and 80 percent for other events such as uh, college football games, bowl games, things of that nature. And there are several problems that are here. One is the amount of, of data, consumer data that they are holding. The second is how they share and monetize that data. Another thing is there is a law on the books called the BOTS Act. And if these sites, like Ticketmaster, said, well, we had a cyber attack, and that's what shut down the night of Taylor Swift. But that doesn't explain other concerts that they have had where they have had this problem um, with tickets. You know, you could look at uh, Madonna. You could look at um, 
so many other artists that have complained about the Ticketmaster fees and the way that fans cannot get on to the Ticketmaster site because the bots are scooping up all the tickets. Now, the bots immediately scoop up all these tickets. Uh, the consumer may think they have a ticket in their cart. They go to check out, and the ticket has disappeared. And it's because the bots scoop them up and transact them. Well, Ticketmaster is trying to say that they catch most of the bots. They say they catch about 90% of the bots. Well, but that's 10%. And those bots are scooping up the tickets, raising the price for your average consumer who can no longer afford to pay uh, this elevated price on StubHub or SeatGeek, one of those sites, to resell a ticket. And then, of course, you have to go back to Ticketmaster. And if you're going to buy that StubHub ticket, you go back to Ticketmaster in order to activate that digital ticket and put it into your wallet. And, yeah. of course, you've got Ticketmaster holding all of this. They have had hacks. They have had cyber attacks. They are not working with the FTC. They're not reporting this into the FTC. I asked the CEO of Ticketmaster today, and I were hearing on this, how many times he had called uh, FTC to say, hey, we need some help. We've got a bot uh, that is scooping up tickets. And since this act was passed in 2016, when Senator Schumer and I passed it, they have called one time to the FTC to say, we've got an issue. That shows me they don't want to clean this system up. They're in the resale business. These bot bots are out there selling spec tickets because Tickets haven't even gone on sale yet, but they know that Ticketmaster is not going to shut them down when they get on Ticketmaster's site. Well, we're way past the days that I can remember of just sitting on hold on the phone for a long time waiting to talk to a representative or people like sleeping overnight for tickets, right, in lawn chairs and hanging out for hours waiting to buy their hard copy tickets that way. It's a, a new world. It has been for a while. There seem to be abuses and you guys are looking into that. Very, very quickly, Senator Blackburn, Bloomberg report today, quote, the Biden administration has confronted China's government with evidence that suggests some Chinese state-owned companies may be providing assistance for Russia's war effort in Ukraine as the administration tries to ascertain if Beijing is aware of those activities, according to people familiar with the matter. Uh, number one, I would not be surprised at all to see China trying to help Russia. Generally, the bad guys in the world stick together. And secondly, these are Chinese state-owned companies, Senator. I find it inconceivable that they would be assisting the Russian war effort without CCP knowledge, right? Oh, absolutely. And, of course, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have met twice since all of this started. And Xi Jinping has been clear that he is standing with Putin in this regard. So I think this is all expected. Um, it Maybe the White House is just now figuring this out. Uh, maybe some of those who are China supporters are just now figuring out that the CCP has lined up with um, Vladimir Putin and that they yeah, are and of course, and the key effort. point being that there's no real meaningful difference between state-owned Chinese companies and the state. 
in that regime. I mean, that's one of the realities in a place like China. We've got to leave it there. Senator Marshall Blackburn. Senator, always enjoy it. We'll talk again soon. You got it. Take care. We'll be right back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. I'm not a big sharer of funny memes on the Internet. I don't really use typically my social media platforms to do that. I did see one that made me chuckle earlier today, and it features a flashback public service announcement. I think back in the Just Say No to Drugs era, 1980s, some of you will absolutely remember this ad involving a frying pan, an egg, and drugs. Remember this? Cut 24. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? So he cracks the egg, it's frying in the pan. This is your brain on drugs. Well, the meme is an update. 1987, this is your brain on drugs. 2023, you can't afford the egg, the gas stove is being outlawed, and the only thing you can get is the drugs. You have to laugh. It's a little dark, but you have to laugh because it's kind of true. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour returns after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier on the show today, we welcomed here in studio in D.C. Brett Bayer, chief political anchor at Fox News and host of Special Report every evening at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Talking news of the day, always great to catch up with Brett. Here's part of that discussion. One story that you've been covering at Special Report for now weeks is this classified documents mess involving President Biden. Now there's a new player in the drama. Mike Pence, the former vice president, turns out that I guess he was getting a little anxious watching all this coverage, <laughs> tasked his attorney with going to his house in Indiana to do a similar type of search. And it turns out that they turned up about a dozen documents. This was alerted today. And people are playing this flashback from November during the whole Mar-a-Lago thing. Pence was asked about classified documents on ABC News. Here's that exchange, Cut 29. Did you take any classified documents with you from the White House? Uh, I, I did not. Um, do you see any reason for anyone to take classified documents with them leaving the White House? Well, there'd be no reason to have classified documents, particularly if they were in an unprotected area. Like a house in Indiana. Unless you you do. Right. Unless you do. I mean, so on and on it goes. Um, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Mike Pence. What's the point of having these laws, Brett? Well, first of all, we are three for four so far on... Former presidents, former vice presidents who've taken home classified documents. I wonder if former President Obama is doing any checks of any offices mm-hmm. or home spaces. Uh, Kamala Harris, perhaps. Yeah. You know, Who knows? Like... Um, I do think that what happens is 
it just becomes a garbly gook of politics, like a big wash of, oh, well, they all do it. And, you know, what's, you know, obviously the, this isn't a big deal where, when it is really a big deal, actually, having these classified documents, depending on what they are. Right. Which we don't know about Pence. Right. With Trump and Biden, we know that there was top secret stuff in there. So that's one of the highest levels. We don't know what the actual landscape looks like with the Pence docs yet, which could make a difference. But again, I think this all just gets fed into a machine and like a wood chipper and people are just like, oh, screw it. Yeah. So if you want to talk pure politics for the past two weeks, this has been a really good time for the former president, Trump, who was looking on the back end of a pretty serious investigation. Not that it's not going to continue to do that, but in this context, in this perspective, it's like, you know, there's other issues here. And it's really going to be tough for the attorney general to look at a special counsel and say, OK, we're going to go forward with an indictment here, but not an indictment here. And then what are we going to do with Pence and, you know, who else? And so I think it's really sticky and becomes just a morass of, well, here we are. They didn't prosecute Hillary. Her situation, in my view, which I've laid out for various reasons, was the worst of all of them that we've seen of this group. And I stand by that completely. If they're not going to prosecute her, then well, they yeah. should. I mean, if you have the the phones being hit with a hammer right. and destroyed. She destroyed evidence. She had a bootleg email server to circumvent the proper protocols that Robert Gates said was almost certainly hacked by our enemies that contained like hundreds of classified emails on them, and then destroyed evidence and lied about it. That's the worst. If she didn't get prosecuted, then you're not going to prosecute Trump on this, I don't think. And now you've got Biden here. He's not going to get prosecuted. Pence, probably the least bad so far of the four of them. It's just sort of depressing. And I'm not saying that any of these – I think Hillary should have been prosecuted. Then there's like this effect where if she didn't cascading down, it gets harder to prosecute other people. But normal people, quote unquote, in the government, in the military, one page of classified material somewhere that's errant could get them a prison sentence. And I think that is a problem when it comes to public confidence. It's the most egregious part of this story and classification. You know, an E-5 who has some document about a nuclear submarine, um, not to sell it, not to you know, that it's an accident, but it's home, uh, gets in real trouble if you're holding that classified information outside of a classified area. So, listen, I think that this um, does move forward, but the way the White House has handled it has been so egregious uh, that I think it made it more of a story, more of a problem, and politically it's it's really an albatross for for the president. My full interview here on The Guy Benson Show with Brett Bayer available at GuyBensonShow.com or as part of our free podcast, the whole show on demand every day, totally free, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be on with Brett on the panel on Special Report later this evening on FNC. When we come back, the home stretch, the Oscar nominations are out. Have we heard of any of these films? We'll go around the horn after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. 
podcast free every day. Are you ready for the Oscars? I'm not. I basically never watched them. I think I might have watched them last like a decade ago. We, of course, talked a lot about them last year with the slap, Will Smith and that whole mess. But in terms of following it, I just don't at all. They've released the nominations. And I'm just curious, three categories here for the team. And you can count at home for yourself as well. Of the 10 Best Picture nominees, how many of them have we seen? How many of them have we heard of? All right, so here they are in alphabetical order. All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inisherin, Elvis, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. So that's 10. I will go through and tell you my answers. I've read the book, All Quiet on the Western Front. Haven't seen the movie, but I've heard of it. I've heard of Avatar. I've heard of Elvis. I've heard of Everything Everywhere All at Once. I've heard of Tar, and I've heard of Top Gun. So I've heard of six of the ten, have not heard of the other four at all. Of these, I have seen exactly one of them. Top Gun, Maverick, obviously, as an American, and I will be rooting for them to pick that one as the winner, just as like an olive branch to normal people. I do want to see Tar. I've heard that one is pretty good. Not really that interested in the rest, honestly. I could maybe be convinced. I'm like open-minded to it, but that's where I'm at. Heard of six, seen one out of the ten. Okay, Wyatt. So I've heard of five, and I've seen zero. Stop it. You didn't see Top Gun? Nope. Nope. I have not. And it, But I really do Wait, what is to. wrong with you? I know. I do know. you have friends? Like, what? I, what? I just, I'm not a movie theater person. I hate going to the movie theater, so I'm waiting for Why? it to— I, I, I don't remember the last time I went. It's also everywhere. Like, I've, I've watched it on an airplane already. I know, I know. I just, I'm also not a big movie person anymore. I just watch TV shows or watch the news. I just don't. I'm not a huge movie person. So, but I do want to see this movie. Like it, it is something that I feel like you have to see because I've seen the first one. So now I, I have to see the second one. Wow. Okay. Yes, you do. That's very important. I would say. All right, Christine. Where are you on this list? I have heard of three. I've seen none. And before you ask me why I have not seen Top Gun Maverick, I just watched Top Gun, the original, for the first time last year. Well, yeah, but that was, if I recall correctly, in October, Mm -hmm. and you loved it, and you were raving about how great it was, and you couldn't wait to see the new one, Mm -hmm. but apparently you could wait, because now it's been like you've waited even longer than Biden did to tell us that there was classified documents in his garage or whatever. Yep, no, haven't seen it yet. Uh, maybe Bobby and I will catch that somewhere on one of these those programs, you know, one of those channels or you pay Streaming for. services? Yes, thank you. <laughs> yep, 
Yep, just you can twirl some eggs and do the what do you call it channels. Uh, I think we found the only two people in the country who haven't seen Top Gun, and they both work on this show. An allegedly patriotic pro-America show where at least the host saw the damn thing and loved it, obviously. All right, Dan, now I'm nervous. Go ahead. So I've seen Top Gun Maverick already four times. There we go. <laughs> yeah, Thank I you. love You've it so much. made up for these other two stragglers. <laughs> Un-American. No. Yes. Um, no, I've seen three out of this list. I've, I just saw Avatar The Way of Water in theaters, which is the way to see it. Um, it was pretty good. Best picture? I don't think so. I have so little interest in anything yeah. Avatar or this this genre. It just does nothing for me. Um, Elvis was amazing. I love Baz Luhrmann movies. Um, he was fant- Austin Bus- Butler was fantastic in it. Um, just a biopic? Is that what that is? Yeah, it's a biopic with a lot of singing and dancing and, and craziness. Um, but he's very, very good as Elvis. and it, it, Good story. If you don't know much about Elvis, you'll learn a lot from it. Um, but I've heard of seven of these. Um, Everything Everywhere All at Once is a very artsy, like, mind-blowing kind of film. Um, So is The Banshee of... Some people absolutely love it. Yeah. And other people do not understand the hype. Exactly. I've not seen it yet um, because my significant other doesn't really go for the artsy-type movies. So I'll see Mm -hmm. it by myself. The Fablemans, I heard, is pretty good. It's about Steven Spielberg's um, actual life and how he got started making movies. So it's kind of an interesting angle, and I would probably see it. But I've heard a lot of these. and uh, I've seen a clip, a pretty extended clip of Tar, which I think is Kate Blanchett, if I'm even saying her name correctly. Yep. Kate Blanchett, however you say it. She plays a very high-level music instructor, if I recall correctly. And the video clip that went viral from the movie was her completely dressing down one of her woke students in a way that was delicious. I think I even retweeted it. So that alone makes me want to see the movie Tar. And a guy that I know who's in the industry said it might have been the best movie he's seen all year. So that might be top of my list among the ones that I haven't seen yet on this list. I also want to point out, this is where we've gotten, since we've done a lot of woke tale stuff already on the show today, The Hollywood Reporter in announcing one of the nominations for Best Actress, described it this way in a tweet. Michelle Yeoh has made history as the first person who identifies as Asian to ever be nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars. Person who identifies as Asian. Can we not just say Asian or Asian American? Can people just identify as whatever they want? Is this like the Rachel Dolezal effect? It's just a very weird way. Things are just ridiculous. Just use simple words that mean things. We don't need to complicate everything in a way that it becomes so tortured and preposterous. It's like, what does that even mean? Sorry, mini rant. Now, I will say, in Wyatt's defense, not a full defense, because... I, too, generally watch more TV series than movies, but I'll watch movies. I enjoy movies, especially ones with lots of buzz, especially ones that love America, like Top Gun. But there's a show on Netflix. It's an Israeli show that I have watched since I first heard of it called Fauda. 
which I believe is the word for conflict in Arabic. Please fact check me on that. But it's it's something like that. And I first heard of Fauda actually at Katie Pavlich's wedding because she got married in Israel to an Israeli-American. And at the wedding, someone was telling me that there's this great show about like terrorism and intelligence and the Israeli military and Mossad and all of that stuff that is so popular, not just in Israel, but also in the Palestinian territories. This person said the Israelis and the Palestinians tend to only agree on two things, hummus and fauda. That's what this person told me. So I, at first opportunity, watched season one of fauda. And I've watched every subsequent season. Season four is now here. It has dropped. And I am, I think, about halfway through the season right now. And it's one of these deals where all of a sudden it's like 1240 a.m. And I have to force myself not to go to the next episode because there's often dramatic cliffhangers. I'm like, no, I have to go to bed enough. So I do recommend Fauda. You have to get ready for subtitles because it's overwhelmingly in Hebrew and Arabic. Tiny bit of English. It's worth it. It's really well done. I'm not sure if Christine would love it because of the suspense and the violence. But a show that is a little bit more up her alley is one that she has finally discovered. Christine, and this maybe gives people a sense that you will watch Top Gun Maverick in like 2027. And then you'll come on the air and be like, wow, there's this great new movie out. What show have you finally discovered, Christine? Ted Lasso on Apple. It is Guy, you watched it, right? It is so good. So, so yeah, good. I, I watched, was season one even before the pandemic? I don't really remember. I enjoy season one. I thought it was very charming and delightful. Season two, we just kind of petered out. N- nothing against it. I wasn't unhappy with season two. I just didn't really feel compelled to keep going. So I guess we kind of just stopped. But season one was great. Very fun. Sort of hit a moment in time. People loved it for good reason. But, like, welcome to Ted Lasso, Christine. Well, at some point, it, I'm going to have to tell you about this really, really popular new comedy called Cheers. Well, I've watched Cheers, but I have to tell you, there's another show that I'm binging right now. And it's called The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Do you remember that? I don't, because that was way before my time. It was not before your time, obviously, but. You're going back and watching some of your favorite episodes that you watched in real time when they first aired. That's sort of nostalgia. That is not true. It was way before my time. But it's about a newsroom. It is so, so good. I can't believe more people, or maybe they did back in the day. I don't know. I never really heard much about Mary Tyler Moore, but I wanted to watch a sitcom with Betty White in it because she is one of my favorite actresses. So I started watching this show, didn't know anything about it. It is so, so good. It's the, every single season's on Amazon Prime. You're a big Must Golden watch. Girls fan, as we've Huge. established. It's because it's like, you know, you like seeing representation on TV. You want to see yourself represented. And, like, that's what Golden Girls was for you in some ways. Still is. Every day, more so. By the way, Wyatt, was I correct? Is Fauda the Arabic word for conflict, or was I wrong? Fact check, you were wrong. I think it's chaos. Chaos, that's it. Yes. Not conflict, chaos. Fauda on Netflix, season four now available. I'm into it. All right, we're out of here. 
Back here tomorrow, same time, same place for the Guy Benson Show. See you on Special Report, the panel coming up in the next hour, Fox News Channel. Have a great night. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.